Welcome to Extension Out Loud, a podcast from Cornell Cooperative Extension. I'm Paul Treadwell. And I'm Katie Bailden. Hey, Katie. Hey. So what do we got going on? Tell us what have we been doing for the past few months? Well, back in the end of February, we had some really interesting conversations. And then we ended up kind of shifting gears a little bit. And we weren't posting any new content for a while because our our priorities and our our jobs actually changed quite a bit during the pandemic. But now we have a little bit of space to return to some of those interesting conversations and share them with you all. So the first one... Tell me about the first one. Who are we starting out with? What's happening? (laughs) So the first one, back in February, we talked to the local roads program director, David Orr, uh, about Cornell's local roads program. So if you're interested in local roads, you'll definitely love it. If you're not interested in local roads, you'll still find interesting stuff in there. (laughs) And and roads are one of those things that initially, when you think about it, doesn't seem that exciting. But once you start talking about it, it's fascinating. We depend on the infrastructure. It's sort of unregarded, except when we had a pothole. And following up our conversation with David for part two of the Local Roads uh, sort of mini-series that we're doing here, we talked to Jeff Griswold, who is the Preble Highway Superintendent and was president of the Executive Committee for the Highway Superintendents of New York. Uh, So Jeff has had a lot of years of experience dealing with local roads and a lot of the issues. And it's important to note, too, that because these conversations happened back in February, when we had very different weather and different road conditions, you might be listening along and think, hmm, that doesn't make sense looking out your window. But just keep in mind that we talked to them a while ago, but the information is still pertinent and relevant to us today. And if you live in central New York, just wait a few months and it'll be relevant again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hope you enjoy our conversations with David and Jeff. Uh, my name is David Orr. I'm the director of the Cornell Local Roads Program and a senior extension associate up in biological and environmental engineering. Welcome, David. So can you tell us a little bit about local roads? And I guess one of the questions I have is why does Cornell have a program dealing with roads? Well, it goes back actually to over 100 years ago when there was a college of civil engineering before it became part of the full college that combined the different colleges together. So the College of Civil Engineering held an event here on campus at Barnes Hall in 1915 called uh, Good Roads Week. It was part of a national movement that was actually started by farmers and bicyclists Hmm. to get the farmer out of the mud and to make that bicycle be able to get out there and not be on rutted roads. And so there was 180 people here, and it was welcomed by the president of the university, Sherman. And uh, that's essentially our roots where we got started. And then we were formed as an official program in what was then the Department of Agricultural Engineering mm-hmm. in 1951, and our first director, Jim Spencer. And if most people may not realize this, but roads in the United States got started in the world of agriculture, not in the world of transportation. There was no Department of Transportation at a national level until after World War II. Mm-hmm. And before that, roads were an agricultural activity getting goods to market. You've heard the farm to market road. That's really how Cornell got started. 
And how did you get started with the program? Well, I was an undergraduate here actually many, many years ago. And I got a job working over in Pena, New York for the county highway department. I, I got to do everything from picking up dead deer to dealing with the legislature. So I got that job there. I worked there for eight years and utilized the services of the local roads program here on campus and was hired first to be the technical assistance engineer to do pretty much what we do around the state. And then I've been here for 24 years providing training assistance and became the director about five years ago. So what is it that you do throughout (laughs) the state? (laughs) Well, our primary role is to help local agencies improve the quality and safety on their local system. But truth be told, we serve anybody who has a road issue. State Department of Transportation, local homeowners associations, cooperative extension offices. If you have a question about roads, we will try to answer it. We may not know the answer. We'll find someone who does. Primary function is technical assistance, but we also do a lot of workshops. We hold a couple of statewide conferences. We have a very extensive website, and we put out lots and lots of different materials to answer people's questions from soup to nuts in the world of roads. What is the most common or or popular question folks have about roads? Well, for the local highway agencies, we probably get mostly questions. If I had to pick one topic that was the most, it'd be tough, but it would probably be split between, interestingly enough, legal issues. We get a lot of those. Uh What's the right of way on a road? Things like that. Questions about signage gets asked a lot. Drainage questions, of course, because drainage is the only thing that really makes a big difference in the structure. And uh, then a scattering of everything else. So you mostly interact with local governments and local road professionals, we'll call them. Yeah, so the people who work for the towns, counties, cities, and state, and villages. Uh Right now in New York State, there are well over 1,500 local governments, all of whom have a small hybrid department, varying in size from a few people up to some departments have several hundred employees, but they all have to deal with local roads issues, and so we help them out whenever we can. So tell us, what is a local road? That's a great question (laughs) because there's lots of debate about that. A local road can be defined really in two different ways. One way is the designation that's put out by the Federal Highway Administration, the national government, and they divide roads into arterials, collectors, and local. And in that particular case, a local road would be the roads you and I live on, where our businesses are. A collector would bring the traffic from those local roads to the big roads that connect cities like 79 going out of Ithaca towards Binghamton. The reality is a lot of roads get mixed use, however, and so it can be a bit of a challenge. The other way local roads is defined, and probably the way that in some respects we're probably closer to, and that is a local road is one that is maintained by a non-state government, at least here in New York State. Mm -hmm. But local really means the roads you and I use to get to work, to get to school. The last mile you may have heard Mm -hmm. in some literature. That in some respects fits a lot of what we're talking about. So it's not traffic volume, it's use that really defines what a local road is. Route 13 that that runs from here through Cortland up into wherever, that's a local road? No, that would definitely be an arterial, actually. It's defined as an arterial by the Federal Highway Administration. They have a big map you can go online. We link to it. And so who's responsible for, for maintaining that? That's a state highway. Okay. Um, inside of a city or a village, it may actually vary, which can be very confusing <laughs> to people. So, for instance, in the city of Ithaca, most of the roads that are labeled as state highways maintained by the state, but a few of them are actually maintained by the city. They just have a state route number within the city and can get very confusing very, very quickly. So who decides who pays for what? Well, that's part of the challenge. <laughs> if it's a state-maintained road and a state-owned road, obviously the state, But if it's a state touring route within a village or a city, then the 
village or city gets some funds to help cover that, but not 100%. And the state doesn't do anything with the drainage underneath, the storm sewer. So that's done entirely by the village. They might be able to get a grant or use some state aid that they get, but it's mostly funded with local tax dollars. So it's really hard to find out who you should complain to about the potholes, huh? (laughs) Actually, what I always tell people to do, and we get this fairly often from the public side, is figure out who the local contact is and talk to them. And start with a, hey, what can we do to make things better? Start from a positive standpoint, and you can usually find out who the right person to talk to is. Mm -hmm. I will admit, not always, but usually you can. It's pretty easy outside of a city or village. It's either a town road or a county road. Inside a village or a city, if you're not sure, talk to the village or city Department of Public Works and go from there. Hmm. So shifting a little bit, um, I'm curious about why some roads are asphalt and some are concrete. Is there any? (laughs) Well, and and don't forget, there's a third one, especially on the low-volume roads. Dirt roads. The dirt or gravel roads that exist. Okay, so generally it should be, hopefully most of the time, driven by economics. Hmm. The problem is defining on whose economics. If you look at it from the cost of the government, um, it's cheaper to pave a road, actually, when the traffic gets up to 150, 200 vehicles per day. But if there's a lot of farm equipment or if it's really steep, it may actually be cheaper sooner. From an environmental standpoint, it actually can be cheaper to maintain a road as a paved road asphalt or concrete in the range of less than 50 vehicles a day because you get more pollution off a gravel road if there's a lot of traffic throwing up the dust causing more erosion one of those great ironies a paved road is better for the environment than an unpaved one in many cases but why do we choose asphalt versus concrete some of it's frankly tradition some of it is how organizations are set up if you were to go to the local roads in iowa for instance you would find most of the local system is concrete because they've sort of gotten into the habit of using concrete as their paving surface. While here in New York State, we almost always pave with different types of asphalt concrete, which is a mixture of asphalt and rocks. And then how we heat it up changes its name. So let's talk about maintaining roads. We're in the middle of winter here, lots of snow. Obviously, salt is the main way of keeping them from being too slippery for us to drive on. Also, I was in the Adirondacks a few weeks ago, and they use a lot of sand up there on their roads. And then recently I was reading an article about some sort of new materials that uh, some jurisdictions are, are experimenting with. So can you tell us a little bit about the different methods for keeping the roads safe to drive on in the winter? Well, the key here is what are you using and why are you using it? Obviously, we have to have plows to plow and push the snow off. And what we do is we put down chemicals or abrasives to give us friction or to help allow the plow to push the snow and the ice off. We don't want a bond to be created. So the question is, do you use chemicals first or abrasives first? The idea behind an abrasives policy is you use sand to give you grit and you drive the grit gives you the friction that you need. That can work on some situations. It doesn't work in some places where it's either cold enough, not super cold, because aggregate actually works better there, sand. Mm -hmm. Um, But it can work really well in low-volume situations. And if you have a gravel road, back to those brown roads again, you have to use sand. If you put salt on a gravel road, you ever made ice cream? Uh You would actually lower the freezing point, and you get a real mosh pit when it warms (sighs) back up. So you don't want to put pure salt or pure chemicals down. But when you're using chemicals, you're trying to keep a bond from forming or you're trying to break the bond that has formed for the ice. We know that it would be better if we could 
somehow keeps the bond from forming. It takes less salt, and that's called, by the way, anti-icing as opposed to the traditional de-icing. The challenge you run into is if you put down dry rock salt, and by the way, why do you think we use rock salt? Well, we got a lot of salt mines here in New York State. And it's not just New York State, all lots of places. In uh-huh. fact, a lot of our salt actually comes from outside New York State, especially down the New York City area. It's actually shipped in by barge. Wow. Moving things by water is very inexpensive. But we use salt because of price. It is still the least expensive per ton, and it's not even close. Mm-hmm. The challenge you run into is when you put down a dry material and traffic comes along, it scatters it off to the side. It only takes a dozen, 20 cars, and any abrasives you put down, any salt you put down that's dry is pretty much gone. So what we do is we make it wet, and we can make it wet three different ways. We can turn it into a brine. You may have heard that, where they actually make a liquid brine. They spray it down. In fact, that's the most common technique for before a storm, where you put it down ahead of a storm, and then you keep a bond from forming. You can wet it in the stockpile and mix it with something, and I'll come back to that one in a minute. Or finally, you can actually wet it just as it's coming out. So you have dry salt in the back of the truck, and you have a spinner that's going to spin it, and right as it's spinning, you add liquid to it. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, you could use water if you could keep the water from freezing. It would actually work amazingly well. The challenge is it's hard to do. You'd have to have heated tanks and those other issues. So typically, we use a very concentrated salt brine with calcium or magnesium chloride, which is still a salt, and we use that to wet everything down. Or we use some of these newer materials, these carbohydrate products that you may have heard about. That's what you probably read about, where they're using leftovers from making cheese, making brine, making beer, making molasses. Again, we're back to waste products again. Uh (laughs) Their most valuable thing they do, they make the salt sticky. So when it's sticky, you put it down, it stays where you put it and allows you to use a lot less material. In Michigan, they've actually studied that, and they've rather than losing three-quarters of the material in you know this few passes, most of it stays in the prism of the roadway where you want it, as opposed to going off and doing damage to the trees and damage to the environment. There are some folks who will claim that, oh, it'll melt stuff. It's still 99% salt, mm. like it or not, at the end of the day. There's just not that much in the mixture. It doesn't take much. It just makes it sticky. It's still mostly salt and Truth be told, mostly rock salt or sodium chloride. Mm -hmm. The sugar in it makes it sticky? It's got a little bit of liquidness in it, and there's a little bit. It's hygroscopic pulse to moisture. I've got jars of it in our lab. I'll show it to you. (laughs) It's not sticky like a molasses. It's more semi-tacky, I guess I would call it. It still stays in grains. It still flows, but when you put it down, it sort of stays where you put it a little bit better than a dry material would. One way you could think about that is imagine take some sand and throw some dry sand on the ground, pretty loose. Taking just a little bit of moisture, it still moves like sand, but it starts to be a little bit tacky long before it becomes enough to build a sandcastle. (laughs) So it's in that stage. Think of it that way. We're in the middle of winter right now, but soon it's going to be spring and we're going to get a lot of rain. Most likely we're getting more and more rain every year. What are some of the methods for making sure that the roads don't get washed out in the rainy season and um, dealing with runoff of you know all that salt that we put on in the winter? Well, let's finish up the conversation on the salt, and then we'll talk about drainage and uh, a lot of people's concerns about changing in the climate. So in terms of the salt, 
the less salt we can use, the better off, because then we don't worry about it getting into the environment. We know that's an issue that we have to deal with. And as part of that, we want to make sure our salt is covered. We want to make sure our equipment is calibrated, things like that. But now we're getting in towards the end of the winter. Things are starting to thaw. Spring thaws when pavements are the weakest because the pavement's frozen underneath. It's wet on top. It's like being on a waterbed. Pavements are the weakest right after they're frozen when they're the strongest. We've got to deal with all that water. And one of the ways we deal with all that water is we put in positive drainage. Ditches, little subsurface drains, similar to the kind you have around your house, things like that. As long as they're doing the job, great. But if they're too deep in terms of the ditch, it's a safety issue. And the ditches themselves can carry the pollutants downstream. And we know that's an issue. We've been working with the Department of Natural Resources and uh, Dr. Rebecca Schneider on that very issue, trying to make ditches do the job for the road and yet not carry the pollutants down faster than we'd like them to be carried. But the other concern we've got to deal with is the volume of water. We can calculate that, and folks like the Solar Water Conservation District is some of the greatest resources that highway agencies can use to figure out how much water they have to deal with. One of the things you start realizing is climate change is going to affect our culverts. We're going to see more big events. Mm -hmm. But just as important as land use. Land use can change the amount of water I have to deal with by a factor of four. 400% more water by changing land use without thinking about it, without putting in the detention basins, without slowing the water down. So uncontrolled land use can be just as bad or maybe even worse than some of the effects we're going to see in the future from climate change. Now you add that on top and it makes it even worse. One of the things we have to do is start thinking back, how did we get here? We didn't get here in six months. We're not going to get out of it in six months. We really need to be thinking down the road, 10, 15, 20, maybe even longer in terms of years to get back to a better integrated system where our ditches and our natural flows work together to protect the water system. And yet we still have dry roads that can handle the truck traffic that's on them. We all pay for road maintenance, but some of us with light cars aren't doing much. So that seems a little strange. It, it is. <laughs> but, uh, well, there's three things here. Let's, let's break them down. The first one, I think this is a useful one. Most of the local roads in New York State are paid for with local taxes. Property taxes and sales taxes were available. Very little of that comes from gas taxes because those gas taxes go up to the state or federal level and then are brought back down. New York actually has added quite a few taxes over the last 20 or 30 years, but not a lot compared to what we probably need. And the federal gas tax hasn't gone up since the 1990s and is tied not to inflation, but is tied to gallons. So therefore, it really is losing buying power over time. So most of our local roads are maintained with local dollars, and there's not a direct tie back to gas tax. People are looking at alternatives. I like gas tax because it gives me a benefit if I use less gas. But right. the challenge is what happens if you have an electric car? Mm-hmm. Well, in an electric car, you're again, capacity maybe, but you're not doing much to the structure. Right. And if they do come up with electric trucks, well, cool. We can, we can find ways to help make sure that they're paying a reasonable amount. It's a balancing act, like everything. Yeah. So. We can turn uh, back to uh, stormwater management and roads. Well, <laughs> and yeah, I'm really fascinated. So you mentioned Rebecca Schneider up, up in uh, DNR. Yes. And it seems to make sense to figure out how you can make your culverts sort of be catchments for some of the, the salts and things like that. So there must be ways to plant or plan that's what she's researching. What, what happened was we, we ran across each other. She has pretty much started finding a niche, a place there wasn't a lot of work being done in the world of ditches. And it turns out in some of the work she has done, she's found out that ditches transport pollutants and increase 
erosion and increase flooding if you're not careful about them. Mm-hmm. So how can we replumb them so they still do the job of drying out the road and yet not do those negatives? And that's how we ran across each other because she was like, well, we got to do something about this, but she's very practical and, well, we still need ditches. We still need these things. So short term, don't overscrape. Try to keep minimize the amount of exposure and the erosion that you've got. Don't make the ditches any deeper than you have to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The next thing to start looking at is maybe replumbing the ditches, shallow them up and fill them with stuff that can actually let the water percolate back into the ground. And then lastly, she's starting to research mattresses and other revivments that can be done or things that can be done, if you prefer, (laughs) that can be put into the ditch to actually pull some of the pollutants out, bio blankets and biochar and You'll have to ask her for the exact titles and the names. We work with her on the practical side of how do you install them. She's doing the math and the science along with the folks at the Water Resource Institute. That's awesome, though, that somebody is actually actively out there working on how can we mitigate some of these impacts because the water has to go somewhere. Yep. And so if we can do something naturally to it before it gets to a place where it has to be chemically treated or whatever to make it not necessarily palatable but safe again we're much better off well and we also can reduce erosion we can reduce uh, pollutants in our lakes and our streams protect our water bodies before they need protecting it's a lot cheaper to just pull water out than it is to try to treat it and the erosion's a big one uh, there's a little statistic that uh, i've got for you in one mile of ditch mm-hmm. which is by the way if you do the math pretty close to one acre of land Erosion begins to occur if you don't put down seed, if you don't put down grass, if you don't put vegetation or rock if you really want to. But if you just have bare earth exposed, how much material do you think it's eroded before you and I can actually figure out there's erosion going on? It's occurring. We just don't see it. The little rills, the soil isn't moved enough for us to detect it. How much do you think gets eroded away before our brain goes, ooh, there's erosion going on? I've never given that any thought. No, most people haven't. Uh, We've done the math, and it turns out it's about 30 tons per mile of exposed ditch. And some surveys that Dr. Schneider has done have shown that anywhere from a quarter to a third of the ditches in the state can be exposed in the spring if we're not careful. There's 115,000 miles of road. You can do the math. That's a lot of material that could be eroded away if we get the heavy storms that you asked about earlier. And we don't want to have that happen. Because then, if you get erosion, you have to go back and redo the ditch. Yeah, and and that erosion has to go somewhere, so it ends up in a place where it shouldn't be. In a place where it shouldn't be. Usually in a culvert, in a lake, in a stream. Yeah. Where we don't want it. Wow. <laughs> so, we are, we're, we're also talking to, who are we talking to from... Um, Jeffrey, the uh, road superintendent from Preble. Ah, yes. Jeff Griswold. Yes. Yeah. Grizz. So the one thing I want to make sure we don't forget about is we don't just answer questions from highway departments. Mm -hmm. We get questions from cooperative extension offices around the state, or they get questions asked, why are they out plowing this road? Why are they out? How do they fill the potholes? Whatever. Yeah. And so we were working with our town superintendents. As I say, that's who we work with a lot. 
And the first thing they said was, we need something for our elected boards. We have something we call a program services guide, which is good for the highway officials, but it's a little too detailed. So we produced a trifold, mm-hmm. a little three, you know, fold it in half piece of paper kind of thing. But we started realizing that there were a lot of questions the public has about how does the highway department work? Why are they doing X and Y? Who owns the land? All these things. And so we started putting together last year, uh, Adam Howell, our communications specialist, started this, and we put together a thing we call a citizen's guide mm-hmm. for local highway operations. And in that particular case, we answered their basic questions. We expanded it. We're actually in the final throws, final whatever word you want to use. <laughs> We're just about done with editing of a new version, which will go out to every uh, elected official in the state that we have their name. We try to keep a database. It will go out to all the highway officials, and we'll also send copies to the cooperative extension offices who will distribute them yeah. to anybody who comes by and says, hey, how come they're uh, paving this week, and how come they aren't plowing my road first? So hopefully we'll get them started. We can't put every question in there, but hopefully we can give people an answer to help them solve the problems because we can only do it together. And is this available going to be available online? Of course it's available online. In fact, the way we've set it up is that each of the individual sheets, mm-hmm. so there's one on legal and liability, there's one on drainage, there's one on what a department does. Each of those could also be a one page you could download and print just the one sheet at a time if you want to. And we'll be linking to those publications from the podcast description so that people can access them easily. So you mentioned one word here that I'd like to pick up on, on the, the state and local uh, governments own the roads. So who, who does own the roads is, is a question I have for you. How, I mean, is it like a, it's a public sort of work, isn't it? It's a, we all own the roads. Well, we all own the roads. Actually, you, when I say bridges and ownership, it gets a little bit fuzzy at times. Um, I probably should have said maintained. Okay. And especially when it comes to roads, it gets even fuzzier, especially on the town and county system. 80 to 90% of the town and county roads are actually not owned by the highway department. They're actually what are called roads by use or streets by prescription. If <laughs> So what does that mean? It means the landowner owns to the center line of the road, but the highway department or the Department of Public Works in the village has the responsibility and the right to maintain what has been maintained and used for 10 or more years. And yes, it can get very confusing <laughs> very, very quickly. <laughs> yeah, gosh. Because they can also lose that right as well. So for instance, let's say they had a roadway that's a town road going through the town of uh, Weiwei Yanda. And yes, there is a town of Weiwei Yanda <laughs> in New York. And it had been there for 15 to 20 years or more. And the town plows it every winter and they chip seal it every four or five years. And there's a couple of ditches. Right-of-way probably goes to the backside of the ditch. They have that right and responsibility to keep maintaining it. But let's say for a variety of reasons, they've let some trees grow up. Uh And those trees get to the point where they're now a safety hazard. If it's a road by use, it's still owned by the landowner. And that tree growing is prima facie evidence, according to the way courts work, that guess they're not maintaining it anymore. And the right-of-way now goes to the front side of that tree. (laughs) Yeah. That's the way it works. And so roads can be narrower than you might expect. And I know of public roads in New York State that are the width of the pavement. There's no shoulder. There's no ditch. That's the edge of the width. There's culverts that go out 70, 80 feet. That can be part of the right-of-way, too, if it's maintained by the local agency on a regular basis. 
That seems a little bit arbitrary and uh, confusing. <laughs> and that's why I think he started. I, I know, but w- w- wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't it be better if there were like a definition of of the road and it's probably. But <laughs> I I deal with the real world the way we've got it. The uh, two the two laws that are involved. The one's in village law, and one is in town law. Well, they're both highway laws. Uh, the highway law, they're one paragraph a piece. The case, the case law that goes with them is 13 pages, and that's just the summaries. So there's lots of cases on it. It gets very confusing. We've actually got a whole chapter in our book on powers and duties, specifically on the right-of-way issue, because it gets so confusing very quickly. So what do we tell both the public and the highway departments? We actually say, look, this is a confusing issue. It's all public funds anyway. Try to work with each other to come up with a solution that serves the needs of the public. Yeah, technically the right-of-way ends, say, at the edge of the ditch. But if it's a steep, deep ditch, why not at the end find a way, maybe make it a little bit wider. Then the local homeowner can maintain it, mow it, and everybody wins. We have a safer road. It looks nicer. Is it outside the right-of-way? Yes. Is it better for the public? Yeah. And as long as you're consistent about it, that's actually an okay thing to do. But the key is being consistent. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're humans. We're not very consistent. We are not very consistent. <laughs> is there anything we didn't cover that you think we should talk about or anything that folks should know about local roads? I think the two things I want to make sure we didn't miss. We've talked about drainage. We've talked about all those other issues, and that is safety. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that anybody listening to this podcast understands how important safety is. Uh, We still lose 30,000 people in the United States every year annually to fatal crashes. We lose almost 1,000 people in just New York State. And we wanted everybody to get home. And crash rates are higher on the local system than they are on the state system per vehicle miles traveled. They're narrower. There's not much sight distance for a variety of reasons. So people need to think about safety. We want everybody to get home. The idea of Vision Zero out of New York City or towards uh, zero deaths, which is a national movement, Mm -hmm. we agree with that. Will we get there? It's going to be really hard. But it's still a goal we should all have. We should all get home every single day. And one of the ways we can do that is working with the local departments, the state DOT, and with each other to slow down and treat each other nicely and put down that cell phone. Yeah. Pay attention to those signs that are placed, those work zone signs that are put up. They can save lives. Um, just as an example, a vehicle traveling down a highway at the state speed limit of 55 miles an hour, will uh, say he's going a little over the speed limit of say 60 miles an hour. Every second he's traveling almost 90 feet, more than the length of a school bus. If the driver is texting, they've just added five seconds to their reaction time. They've just driven past a football field, including the end zones and a little extra, before they realize there's something they might need to be aware of. So, folks, keep yourself safe. Put down the cell phone. Pay attention while driving. That's sobering. I mean, we, we know these things, but it's really sobering to hear it again. I, I always tell people, if you're not sure about that, next time you're riding, please, riding in a car, <laughs> close your eyes, count to five, see what you missed. That's what you're doing when you're texting. Wow. Roads are one of those things that we all use them. 
well, most of us use them and they're important to our lives, but I think we really underconsider their value and impact. Unless there's a pothole. Well, unless, <laughs> yeah, unless there's something to complain about. We don't, th- we take it for granted. We do that with a lot of government services and probably roads are as, we're as guilty with roads as any other governmental services. Yeah. So we want to thank you for taking your time and helping enlighten folks on some of the uh, issues around roads and who's responsible and, and our individual roles and because we all do have a role in maintaining the upkeep of the roads and the safety yep and the and origins of roads and in, in the local roads program was really interesting yeah nope not fun. a problem it's sort of fun uh, <laughs> we've been doing a little digging finding some of that history and and i'll say if, if folks listening have a question contact their local cooperative extension office contact us directly we'll be glad to help find an answer if we don't know, we'll find you a resource that does, or at least point you in the right direction. Great. And we'll be sure to link to your site, some of the uh, publications that were mentioned. Thank you very much, David. We appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to this episode. Extension Out Loud was produced and edited by Paul Treadwell, with help from Katie Belden and R.J. Anderson. For more about this episode, including show notes, a listener survey, uh, sign up for our mailing list, and more, visit extensionoutloud.com. And be sure to subscribe to Extension Out Loud on your favorite podcast directory.